and you can turn to uh, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, we are going to continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, but today what I'd like to do is to focus on the very first word of the sermon. I've been kind of thinking and meditating on this subject again, and we'll title this today, The Grace of Repentance Unto Love. So in Matthew 4 and 17, this is really the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have called us out of darkness into light and that you have blessed us with the grace of faith and repentance unto life so that we might be healed that we might be restored to the fallen from the fallen image to be conformed to be like our big brother I pray Holy One that you would bless your words today to our souls in Christ's name Amen so the grace of repentance unto life We see that John also preached this when it says that he began to preach repent and then Jesus comes and says repent, the first recorded word. It's also the first recorded command. Repent is a command. As we go through this today, I've, I've kind of been saturating myself and Thomas Watson, an old preacher in a book, that he wrote called The Doctrine of Repentance. And so we'll hear from some of his beautiful phrases related to this. The first of which is this. The two graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. Two essential graces. Faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which we fly to heaven. Moist tears quench sin and dry up the wrath of God. Either sin must drown or the soul burn. <clears throat> Tomorrow may be our dying day. Let this be our repenting day. Those are all beautiful phrases from Pastor Watson that really get at the heart of this grace of repentance. In Luke 16 and 30 and 31, we read, And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead. Now, y'all know what this is coming from. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. This is the story of the man that was rich and Lazarus of the poor beggar that laid at his doors. It was full of sores. The dogs licked his sores. And, and the rich man threw his scraps out the door every day for the dogs. And Lazarus would Fight with the dogs for the scraps. But this rich man dies and lifted up his eyes in torment, and Lazarus is gone, taken to heaven into Abraham's bosom. There's a reality of being taught here that there is a real heaven, there's a real hell, and they, you can't go from one to the other once you're in one of those places. And we see here that somehow or another they're able to communicate. And this rich man is trying to get the Lord to send somebody to warn his brothers about this place that he has wound up in. You see, this rich man didn't believe in repentance until he wound up in hell where he will never receive the grace of repentance. And there he says in verse 30, Luke 16, 30, and he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. 
Well, we have the testimony both of Moses and the prophets and one that did rise from the dead that we are to repent before we die. And that this grace of repentance is a gift that is not given to everyone. Wonder what that man today who's been in that place these many thousand years, what would he give to have the grace of repentance today? How precious is the grace of repentance. Today what I'd like to do is just define this precious gift of grace unto life. And then give some elements of true repentance that I take from Thomas, Thomas Watson, Pastor Watson. So as we talk about repentance, we... We understand that the grace of faith and repentance goes together. Repent and believe is what we're told in Mark. Uh, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So repentance and faith go together. Which one comes first? Repentance or faith? Repentance is the first thing we see. And one who has been given faith. Right? It's like two heads of the same coin. You can't have true faith without true repentance. Or I said a head and a tail. Two sides of a coin. You can't have true faith without true repentance. And you can't have true repentance without true faith. These are, this is the walk of life for you. So you're on the way somewhere. You're on to a spiritual reality that lasts forever. And on your way to that reality, you take one step of faith and one step of repentance. Any journey you're on, it's one step here and a step there. It's, uh, it's the Texas two-step and the dance of life. Step, step, step. Today I'm going to focus on repentance. So my main purpose today... It's for you to understand what's going on in your soul, believer. Because repentance is painful. And yet, it's through repentance that the clouds are cleared in your soul and the sunshine comes in. So I want you to understand what's going on in your soul related to this gift, this grace. So that you don't resist it. Or put it off. So let's first define this grace of repentance. So we're just going to go through some scriptures here and look at what the Bible says about the definition of repentance. The word itself means a change of mind. And this is not like a, you know, a change of mind that you change again tomorrow. This is a change of mind that is ongoing and is being perfected until the great day. One of the things that I learned wrong about repentance in growing up in uh, an Armenian doctrine is that uh, I got the idea, and maybe this wasn't exactly what was being taught, but I got the idea that repentance is something you do once, and once you've repented, you're done. And that if I repented, you know, 40 years ago when I walked the aisle and joined the church, then that's enough. Well, the doctrine of repentance in the scriptures teach us that this is a grace that we're given that is always in exercise in the life of the believer. So this change of mind is because of sorrow that we have for anything that we've done or we've said. Pain or grief of maybe someone we've injured, something we've done, and it results in a change in mind, a change in behavior, a change in life. Of course, this is rooted in being born of the Spirit. True repentance must come from the transformation of death into life. When Paul was talking of his conversion in Acts 24, before Festus and King Agrippa, he related... In his uh, testimony, his life before 
conversion, repentance, and faith. His experience of repentance and faith. And his life after repentance and faith. So true repentance has a before, an experience of grace, and an after. Do you have that in your life? Exodus 12, 1 and 2, and verse 8. This is the Passover that was implemented by the Lord through Moses in Exodus 12. I mentioned this, I think, briefly last Sunday. But you'll find as you start thinking about repentance or faith and as you're reading through the Bible this year, you'll start seeing this throughout the whole Bible. You'll start seeing how this is a grace that was taught throughout the Bible. In Exodus 12, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So after repentance, it's a whole new year, a whole new life, a whole new beginning. In verse 8, they were told that to eat the flesh of the sacrificed lamb in the night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread with bitter herbs. You shall eat it. So every time we eat the lamb, the sacrifice, by faith, when we eat his body and drink his blood, we do it with bitter herbs. The bitter herbs are the repentance, the sorrow, which always go with the faith in eating, faith and repentance. And when they did that, they were supposed to be ready to leave in a moment's notice. And they were to leave behind their slavery and their bondage of 400 years never to return to Egypt again. And so in Exodus, we see that true repentance is a leaving behind of sin never to return. The disposition that we want to always be turning from it and towards new behavior, a new way of life. And so we see that supernatural grace, this gift of repentance unto life in the Passover feast. And that it turns out, it turns into a new year, a new life. Their October began to be January for them after this Passover meal. We also see that true repentance is granted by God. True repentance is something that's given. And we've kind of already mentioned that, but it, it says in Acts eleven eighteen, When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying... Then has God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And we see that in many other places. So true repentance is defined by something that God grants. Something that God commands. It is also something that must be preached throughout the Acts of the Apostles, we read of the preaching that went on there. And again and again, you see there that the, these disciples and apostles were preaching the same thing John the Baptist and Jesus did. Repent and believe. Now, one example of that is in Acts 20, 21. It says they were testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever John came and he, he said, uh, bring forth fruits, what? Meat for repentance. Fruits, works, fruits in your life that are equal to true repentance. So when we go into the James letter that J Jonathan is teaching us in, John is talking about fruits that equal true faith. Fruits that equal true faith. Fruits of faith and repentance. We see that also in Acts 26.20. 20, it says, But showed first unto them at Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Equal to repentance. 
So repentance frees us. So in this definition of repentance, we see that it is a freeing grace. What does it free us from? We see that in 2 Timothy 2.25 and 26. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Those that are unrepentant of their sin are actually doing what? Fighting against themselves. Possibly fighting against their own family. Their friends. Their own congregation. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance. To the acknowledging of the truth. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So repentance frees us from being taken captive by the snare of Satan, which is lies. Because acknowledging the truth frees you from his lies and propaganda. We also see that repentance is a foundational grace in Hebrews 6, 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance. Foundation of repentance. Repentance is a foundational grace. It's what we are building our life on in this world. Repentance and faith. So that you might appreciate this grace unto life, I sent this out to you. You get a copy of this. You can take a look at those verses and meditate upon those. This, this great gift that we've been given to be able to repent. It's, it's like the get out of jail free card in Monopoly. Except it costs something. So meditate upon these verses and think about these mercies that God has given us. That we might improve this grace. There's an idea that we have that God has given you this gift of the grace of repentance. It's like a tool in our toolbox. Whenever a carpenter is at work in his shop and woodworking, he must be skilled in the use of his tools. And the only way he can be skilled is in using them. If the diesel mechanic is working on his machinery, he's got to be skilled in the use of his tools. If the seamstress is going to be skilled in sewing and making clothing, she has to be skilled in the use of her tools. And this is a tool that we must be skilled in how to use repentance and use this grace so that we continue to grow in grace and sanctification. And so the next thing I'd like to do is talk to you about the nature of true repentance. And I'm going to take the points uh, from Pastor Watson and just use his points and then some of the scriptures that he used. So the nature of true repentance is a sight of sin. So first, true repentance is a sight of sin. A true penitent sees their own sin. And when I use this word penitent, I, you know, I try to, to sometimes to go back and think, is there a new word that we can use for repentance and penitent? But then I remember a, a pastor said one time, you know, these are the languages of the, the land we're going to, and we need to learn the language. And so I would encourage you kids, learn the meaning of penitent. That's one who is repenting. Learn what these words mean and think on them. A sight of sin, a true penitent sees their own sin. It's like if you have cataracts in your eyes, you're born with cataracts in your eyes. You're born blind and unable to see your own sin. And so you have to go get laser surgery or cataract surgery to take these things out of your eyes. Maybe you have pink eye or an infection or something where you can't see clearly and you put eye solve on your eyes to, to be able to see. True repentance is a grace that gives you a clear sight of your sin. Not somebody else's. You can't help somebody else until you first got the what out of your own eye. 
the beam, the four by four, the six by six out of your own eye, then you can help someone else. Acts 26, 18. The Holy Spirit says, this preaching is to open their eyes. Have your eyes been opened to your sin? To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. And so this true repentance is a clear seeing of the sin in your life. And the word of truth, the Bible, is how we see the sin in our life. And so having received this opening of the eyes, by being given this precious grace of repentance, we come to ourselves. The prodigal. You remember that in Luke 15? And when he came to himself, he saw his sin. He'd been eating pig slop. He was eating pig slop even when he had all the money and he was faring sumptuously and partying all the time. He was already eating pig slop. Then God let him eat real pig slop to bring him to repentance that he might see the error of his ways. So he comes to himself. And you start to see the working of this grace in the heart of the prodigal. He said, how many hard servants did my fathers have that got bread enough to spare? And here I am perishing with hunger. And so we see true repentance also brings us to that grace. Hungering and thirsting in the Beatitudes. So Christ is teaching us in the Beatitudes, the first four graces are repentant graces. The prodigal says, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And so when we have a true sight of our soul's deformities it is the beginning of true repentance the second thing in true repentance is sorrow for sin the second aspect of true repentance is sorrow for sin Psalms 38 18 I will declare mine iniquity I will be sorry for my sin the word sorry here in that verse has the idea of the soul being crucified. You can't have a child without pain any more than you can have true repentance without sorrow. Salty tears wash out the corrosion of sin. Watson. A true penitent labors to work their heart into a sorrowing frame. A true penitent goes into their closet and gets down on their face and says, God, help me feel sorrow for my sin. Don't let me be hardened, Father. We work ourselves up to a holy agony over our sins. And the promise is, those who mourn shall be comforted. Whatever extent that you can work up this holy agony in your soul for your sin, the comfort will always outdo it. <laughs> Isn't that great that we have that promise? Oh, no, go deep in your sin. Don't cover it up. Don't manipulate. Don't. Try to hide it. 
Lance the boil. Because the comfort will be more than equal to the sorrow that you receive. The more sorrow, the more comfort. This is, these are these great, what we call paradoxes. Things that appear contradictory, but they're not. In a spiritual reality, these things are true. The deeper the sorrow for sin, the deeper the comfort we receive. And then, you can comfort others. But I get ahead of myself. Psalms 126.5 They that sow in tears shall reap in what? Joy. Those that sow in tears shall reap in joy. True repentance has true sorrow. When was the last time you wept for your sin? There is a deadening effect of excessive comfort and wealth and food that deadens us to sensing sin and keeps us from the comfort and the joy by digging deep. The next thing, the third thing of true repentance is confession of sin. A true penitent confesses their sin like in Nehemiah 9.2 when it says the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they were not only confessing their sins, they were, they were understanding that when you're in a corporate body, there's sins that we also need to be sorry for in the corporate body. We see that Daniel confessed the sins of his nation in Daniel chapter 9. We see Solomon doing that. Now I know those men are leaders, but still, there's a prophet uh, in the Old Testament talked about God sending judgment into Israel and there were, before the angel of judgment went, he went in and he marked everyone on the forehead that was sorrowing and weeping for the sins of the nation and for their own sins. And they were spared from the judgment. So confessing of sin. James 5.16 Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous Man and righteous woman avails much. So confess your faults. Expose it. The poison must be gotten out. In 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32, along with this idea of confessing sin, the Apostle Paul here says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged, but when we are judged... We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. There's the idea in this verse that we are all on the way to the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And that the true repentant is judging ourselves all along the way according to the word of God. And as we judge ourselves according to the word of God and we see our sin, have sorrow for our sin, and confess our sin... And we get to the judgment seat. The Lord Jesus is going to say. Their sins already been judged. They've already repented of it. It was judged in Jesus Christ. And they were given this grace of repentance. And you can see by their life. That they were true believers. That they had true faith in Christ. And so confessing and exposing it. It's the opposite of what our sin tells us to do. Isn't it? Sin wants to stay hidden. Proverbs 28, 13. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. Number four. Shame. A true penitent feels shame. Blushing is the color of virtue. In Ezekiel 43 and 10, 
You son of man, show the house of Israel, show to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. That they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Iniquities is sin. Inequalities. Where our life is not equal with the moral law. Black, sin equals a black heart. The grace of repentance leads to a red face and a clean heart. The prodigal was ashamed and said he was no longer worthy to be in the family. He's shamed. He's ashamed of what he's done. He said, I, I'm so ashamed. I don't belong in your house anymore. And the father's response, he puts the robe and the ring and calls for a party of joy and rejoicing. Sometimes people experience shame because they've been sinned against wickedly and evilly by other people. And that is a, a terrible, terrible tragedy. So shame is real. But whether you felt shame for your own sin or somebody else sinning against you, remember Christ. Remember Christ. Christ was stripped naked publicly. How would that feel if they took one of us out and stripped us out in the public square? That'd be shameful, wouldn't it? What happened if you were convicted of a crime wrongfully and sent to prison for 20 or 30 years? And we see that's happened. You were forced to endure the shame of something you didn't commit. Christ did that for you. If Christ was stripped naked and executed with criminals... The Holy Son of God. Should we not feel shame for our own sin? I was thinking of the story of William Jewell. Y'all remember that here in Atlanta? The bombing at the Olympics. He was wrongfully convicted and tried in the newspapers. And he won a judgment against him for it. But for a long time, everybody thought he was this... Wicked bomber, that he was guilty. He had to suffer shame for something he didn't do. So a true penitent feels shame. Next is hatred of sin. Hatred of sin. A true penitent hates sin. Christ has never loved till sin be hated. What does the world tell us? Love yourself. What does hatred of sin lead to? It leads to a kind of self-loathing. Particularly for the nature of sin that is still within us. These things are opposite. Loathing sin and loving of self. We're never more precious in God's eyes than when we are lepers in our own. Watson. Never more precious in God's size than when you're a leper in your own. How would you feel if one of your children came to you or a friend who is completely crushed and repentant and sorrowful and self-condemning? Wouldn't that break your heart? Christ has a tender heart for all of his children who are in this state of sorrowful repenting. It's impossible, no, excuse me, it is possible for your mind to hate consequences of sin and your heart still loves sin. That's false repentance. There's many who will confess sin because they don't like the consequences or, the, or they don't want to get caught. 
It's also possible to have a legal terror of the consequences of sin, and you can change your behavior. Say if somebody's an alcoholic and they're, they get a DWI, and they're, they know if they get caught again, they're going to go to jail, and so they have this legal terror, and they'll change their ways and amend their ways, but yet they haven't stopped loving sin. So hatred of sin is a true penitent. In Psalms 119, 113, I hate vain thoughts. I hate vain thoughts, says David here. And we know from Proverbs it says the thought of foolishness is sin. So that kind of magnifies the nature is that you've been given the ability to think and to reason and to use your mind, even right here, right now, to stay focused on what the Holy Spirit's delivering you. And even random thoughts, vain thoughts. Prophet Jeremiah says, How long shall these vain thoughts lodge within you? The thought of foolishness is sin. We are supposed to harness this power of mind that God has given us that we might think with wisdom and justice and righteousness. And the psalmist says, I hate vain thoughts. I hate these sinful thoughts I'm having. But thy law do I love. Do you hate sin? Hate, hatred of sin will be evidenced by the care we take with our ear gate, our eye gate. The things we hear and see. The things we present this body and our minds with during the week. And the next thing is a turning. This is the final thing. A true penitent turns from sin. A true penitent turns from sin. And this is kind of what I've already mentioned in that Exodus text. They had their staff in their hand. They were ready to go. They ate the bitter herbs and the lamb. And then they got out of Egypt never to return. Someone who turns back to sin once repenting for it is like a what kind of animal? Y'all kids remember? A dog that returns to its vomit. And I've seen a dog do that. Probably most of us have seen a dog do that. And it's disgusting, isn't it? It's nothing more disgusting than watch a dog do that. And every time we see that, it should bring this to mind. I need to repent of my sin and not go back to it because it's disgusting. Brother and sister, you are a child of the king. You are of such a dignity and a new spirit and a new mind that that won't satisfy you. Eat those things which are good. This turning, a true penitent, turns from sin. And Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way. This forsaking is a permanent forsaking. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Dying to sin is the life of repentance. That's another great sentence from Watson. Dying to sin is the life of repentance. This is a lifelong growing, a lifelong turning away more and more. I've heard the testimony of people who've walked with the Lord a long time say they hope and trust that they're sinning less as, as they've gotten older. But they also testify that even a little sin seems worse as they get older than when they were younger. Sin saps your bodily strength. It saps your mental strength and blinds your mind. Even a book I read some years ago when I was trying to be a salesman uh, was, was about a salesman that was telling all of his salesmen, don't look at pornography because you can't be a good salesman if you look at that because this man had discovered that that would sap his salesmen of all of their strength and their ability to be able to get your money into their pocket. 
Sin saps our strength. So turn from it. Get away from it. Satan tempted Christ to turn stones into bread. Christ turns your stony hearts into living hearts that might feel sin so that you might turn from it. We turn from darkness to light. Ephesians 5.8 You were sometimes dark. This is the admonition of the Spirit to you. Don't do that anymore. Don't be like those Gentiles that don't know Christ. Turn from that. You were sometimes in darkness. Now you've had the sight of sin, the sorrow for sin, the shame of sin, the confession of sin. You are now turning. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The heart is the first thing that lives. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. In the child. The heart is the first thing that lives in a child of God. And repentance is the daily exercise that keeps the heart of faith strong. You want to keep your heart of faith strong. Keep the heartbeat of repentance going in your life by exercising it through repentance. A true penitent turns to God out of love. This holy fire, this holy passion, this holy desire where your heart's been recovered from loving dog vomit to loving the seven-course meal, the wonderful appetizers and dainties of Christ. This holy exercise separates us from sin with a one-way ticket never to return. That's turning from sin. So these are the six ingredients of true penitence. Sight, sorrow, confession, shame, hatred, and turning. This is a holy living command that those that know Christ will obey. And you are obeying it. And you are doing this. And God is working in our midst. And He's working in your life every day and every year to lead you to more and more repentance. Your life is like... You know, I used to see the, the little... My grandmother and these ladies get together and do these quilts and do quilting. And, you know, they all had a role to play in there with all the threads in there. I can tell you that Jesus Christ has His hand on every little thread in your life. And He loves you so much that if He sees some corrosion or some sin in your life, an infection somewhere, He knows which thread to pull in the circumstances that are going on today or this week... He'll pull those circumstances and move things in a way to help you exercise this grace of repentance. To keep you moving towards that end where you will see Him face to face. There is a warning that we have of those that did not repent. In Matthew 11 and verse 20. And 24, then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Can you imagine seeing the miracles and blind people being healed and, and the deaf, the lame, and all of these miracles going on and the gospel being preached and, you know, demoniacs going from being demon-possessed to being seated and clothed and in their right mind. Can you imagine going and seeing all of that and rejecting Christ? This again evidences that this is something that is given. You can't work it up. And what, it, what is the warning? The warning is don't wait till your dying day and think, well, I'll repent when I'm on my deathbed. I'll keep hanging on to this sin and rolling this little Delilah under my tongue and then I'll repent of it sometime in the future. No! Today is the day of salvation. The call is coming here today in this room through the message and the spirit and the text. Repent. Repent. He did all of these mighty works there and he upbraided them because they repented not. And in verse 24, he says, But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. There is a worse sin than sodomy. There's a worse sin than LGBTQ sins. 
of rejecting God's design and sexuality, one man, one woman. There's a worse sin, and it's called rejecting the gospel and rejecting Christ. So some things to consider repenting for. Uh, how much attention are we giving to the word that the Lord has given us? Sundays and Wednesday nights and Sunday afternoons, we've got a plan for how to help you grow in grace and to grow in your grace of repentance. And we are prone to ruts. We're prone to get stuck and to turn precious things into tradition and routine. Repentance keeps us from doing that. And we should repent if we're not giving heed, if, we, if, if we're not paying attention and really laying hold of the things that are being taught. This is a precious grace that is given to us. These words that we're receiving right now, these are eternal things. The value of the doctrine of grace of repentance is beyond measure. Remember the barren fig tree. Year after year, you have the privilege of hearing the gospel preached. You have the privilege of hearing the truth of God preached. Bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. Because the Lord, one day, there is a too late doctrine where those who are under gospel preaching year in and year out, if they don't repent of their anger, their fornication, their wickedness, their evil, if you don't repent of it and leave it behind, that fig tree, there's a day it gets chopped down. I think one thing that has come up again and again in teaching that has been working in my soul is harsh judgments against each other behind each other's back. Maybe that's something we need to repent of. Laziness. One of the things I've also been thinking about is forgetting our baptism and the vows we made in our baptism. We need to use our baptism to remember we came from darkness to light and to live like it. Sabbath day sin. I don't think Isaiah 58 is no longer in effect. I think it's still in effect. And he says, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him and not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then shall you delight yourself in the Lord. Do you want to have more delight in the Lord? Then think about how you are using the Sabbath day. He says, Then shall you delight in the Lord. I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob thy father. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Are we giving heed to that? And just the last one because of what's going on this past week. What about pride in sports? Can you say ouch? What about pride in sports? One of the things that really kind of turns my stomach today is how money... And the arrogance of athletes. There doesn't seem to be any humility anymore. The emperor has no clothes. Y'all remember that story? There are two con men arrive at the capital city. Hans Christian Andersen wrote this story. And an emperor spends lavishly on clothing at the expense of the state matters. And these weavers come... And they offer to supply him with magnificent clothes that are invisible. These are magical clothes. Nobody else can see them. Everybody else, you know, you have to have this special ability to be able to see these clothes. Magical clothes. And if you can't see them, you're just stupid or ignorant. And so they, uh, the emperor hires them. They set up these looms. They go to, wake, uh, go to work. A succession of officials and then the emperor himself going there to visit them to see their progress and each of them see that the looms are empty, but they pretend otherwise to avoid being thought a fool. Finally, the weavers report that the emperor's suit is finished. Y'all know the story. He puts, on the, he, he puts on nothing. He walks out, you know, without anything on. And it takes a little innocent child to blurt out, the emperor's naked. Before everybody realizes they've all been duped. And yet, the emperor continues the procession walking more proudly than before. It's a great lesson in that, isn't there? 
the doctrine of repentance keeps us from being think from thinking that we have any clothing or any righteousness of our own. We don't. We have to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Just to end, remember, in those seven letters to the seven churches, what is the one command Jesus has given to those seven churches? He tells them all the good things they're doing. He's encouraging them. And yet he tells them, repent. And return to your first love. Now that, he is saying today to us, repent and turn to your first love. And Jesus Christ, in Revelation 1.5, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. What did it take? For us to be washed from the things that would eternally torment us and be ever clearly before our eyes, our own sins. But his own blood, he washed us in his own blood. And all of this is so that you might receive grace unto life, the grace of repentance under life. So I want you, brothers and sisters, to understand what's going on in your soul. Why you have sorrow. Why you have mourning. It's good. If you have that, rejoice. Comfort will always be more than the sorrow. If you're not in Christ this day, and you've not experienced true repentance in every particular we have talked about, I pray that God would grant you that grace today. And for those of you who are struggling or weak, I'll tell you this. Every little motion in your soul towards repentance and faith in Christ delights Christ and he rejoices and he sings over you. You are beloved. You are forgiven. You are mine. May God bless his word.